everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be sharing this absolutely beautiful book with everyone. I'm also a bit nervous, not going to lie, because I've never really done anything like this before. And that being said, a word of warning before I dive into a tree grows in Brooklyn. I will inevitably be uh, mispronouncing words and also attempting some really inaccurate and <laughs> probably horrible um, accents at various points while reading this book, so forgive me for that now, if you would please. Cool. Alright, let's get started. Book one, chapter one. Serene was a word you could put to Brooklyn, New York, especially in the summer of 1912. Somber as a word was better, but it did not apply to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Prairie was lovely, and Shenandoah had a beautiful sound, but you couldn't fit those words into Brooklyn. Serene was the only word for it, especially on a Saturday afternoon in summer. Late in the afternoon, the sun slanted down into the mossy yard belonging to Francie Nolan's house and warmed the worn wooden fence. Looking at the shafted sun, Francie had that same fine feeling that came when she recalled the poem they recited in school. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight, stand like druids of eld. The one tree in Francie's yard was neither a pine nor a hemlock. It had pointed leaves which grew along green switches which radiated from the bough and made a tree which looked like a lot of opened green umbrellas. Some people called it the tree of heaven. No matter where its seed fell, it made a tree which struggled to reach the sky. It grew in boarded up lots and out of neglected rubbish heaps, and it was the only tree that grew out of cement. It grew lushly, but only in the tenements districts. You took a walk on a Sunday afternoon and came to a nice neighborhood, very refined. You saw a small one of these trees through the iron gate leading to someone's yard, and you knew that soon that section of Brooklyn would get to be a tenement district. The tree knew. It came there first. Afterwards, poor foreigners seeped in, and the quiet old brownstone houses were hacked up into flats. Feather beds were pushed out onto the windowsills to air, and the tree of heaven flourished. That was the kind of tree it was. It liked poor people. That was the kind of tree in Francie's yard. Its umbrellas curled under, or over, around, and under her third floor fire escape. An 11-year-old girl sitting on this fire escape 
could imagine that she was living in a tree. That's what Francie imagined every Saturday afternoon in summer. Oh, what a wonderful day was Saturday in Brooklyn. Oh, how wonderful anywhere. People were paid on Saturday, and it was a holiday without the rigidness of a Sunday. People had money to go out and buy things. They ate well for once, got drunk, had dates, made love, and stayed up until all hours, singing, playing music, fighting, and dancing, because the morrow was their own free day. They could sleep late until late mass, anyhow. On Sunday, most people crowded into the 11 o'clock mass. Well, some people, a few, went to early six o'clock mass. They were given credit for this, but they deserved none, for they were the ones who had stayed out so late that it was morning when they got home. So they went to this early mass, got it over with, and went home and slept all day with a free conscience. For Francie, Saturday started with the trip to the junkie. She and her brother, Neely, like other Brooklyn kids, collected rags, paper, metal, rubber, and other junk, and hoarded it in locked cellar bins or in boxes hidden under the bed. All week, Francie walked home slowly from school with her eyes in the gutter looking for tin foil from cigarette packages or chewing gum wrappers. This was melted in the lid of a jar. The junkie wouldn't take an unmelted ball of foil because too many kids put iron washers in the middle to make it way heavier. Sometimes Neely found a seltzer bottle. Francie helped him break the top off and melt it down for lead. The junkie wouldn't buy a complete top because he'd get into trouble with the soda water people. A seltzer bottle top was fine. Melted, it was worth a nickel. Francie and Neely went down into the cellar each evening and emptied the dumbwaiter shelves of the day's accumulated trash. They owned this privilege because Francie's mother was the janitress. They looted the shelves of paper, rags, and deposit bottles. Paper wasn't worth much. They got only a penny for ten pounds. Rags brought two cents a pound, and iron four. Copper was good, ten cents a pound. Sometimes Francie came across a bonanza the bottom of a discarded wash boiler. She got it off with a can opener, folded it, pounded it, folded it, and pounded it again. Soon after nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, kids began spraying out of all the side streets onto Manhattan Avenue, the main thoroughfare. They made their slow way up the avenue to School Street. Some carried their junk in their arms, Others had wagons made of wooden soapbox with solid wooden wheels. A few pushed loaded baby buggies. Francie and Neely put all their junk into a burlap bag and each grabbed an end and they dragged it along the street up Manhattan Avenue, past Mayor, Tenayak, Stag to School Street. Beautiful names for ugly streets. From each side street, Hordes of little ragamuffins emerged to swell the main tide. On the way to Carney's, they met other kids coming back empty-handed. They had sold their junk and already squandered the pennies. 
Now, swaggering back, they jeered at the other kids. Rag picker! Rag picker! Francie's face burned at the name. No comfort knowing that the taunters were rag pickers, too. No matter that her brother would straggle back empty-handed with his gang and taunt later comers the same way. Francie felt ashamed. Carney plied his junk business in a tumble-down stable. Turning the corner, Francie saw that both doors were hooked back hospitably, hospitably, and she imagined that the large, bland dial of the swinging scale blinked a welcome. She saw Carney, with his rusty hair, rusty mustache, and rusty eyes, presiding at the scale. Carney liked girls better than boys. He would give a girl an extra penny if she did not shrink when he pinched her cheek. Because of the possibility of this bonus, Neely stepped aside and let Francie drag the bag into the stable. Carney jumped forward, dumped the contents of the bag on the floor, and took a preliminary pinch out of her cheek. While he piled the stuff onto the scale, Francie blinked, adjusting her eyes to the darkness and was aware of the mossy air and the odor of wetted rags. Carney slewed his eyes at the dial and spoke two words, his offer. Francie knew that no dickering was permitted. She nodded yes, and Carney flipped the junk off and made her wait while he piled the paper in one corner, threw the rags in another, and sorted out the metals. Only then did he reach down into his pants pocket, haul up an old leather pouch tied with a wax string, and count out old green pennies that looked like junk too. As she whispered, thank you, Carney fixed a rusty junked look on her and pinched her cheek hard. She stood her ground. He smiled and added an extra penny. Then his manner changed and became loud and brisk. Come on, he hollered to the next one in line, a boy. Get the let out, he timed the laugh. And I don't mean junk. The children laughed dutifully. Their laughter sounded like the bleeding of lost little lambs, but Carney seemed satisfied. Francie went outside to report to her brother. He gave me 16 cents and a pinching penny. That's your penny, he said, according to an old agreement. She put the penny in her dress pocket and turned the rest of the money over to him. Neely was 10, a year younger than Francie, but he was the boy. He handled the money. He divided the pennies carefully. Eight cents for the bank. That was the rule. Half of any money they got from anywhere went into the tin can bank that was nailed to the floor in the darkest corner of the closet. And four cents for you and four cents for me. Francie nodded the bank money in her handkerchief. She looked at her own five pennies, realizing happily that they could be changed into a whole nickel. Neely rolled up the burlap bag, tucked it under his arm, and pushed his way into Cheap Charlie's, with Francie right behind him. Cheap Charlie's was the penny candy store next to Carney's, which catered to the junk trade. At the end of a Saturday, its cash box was filled with greenish pennies. By an unwritten law, 
it was a boy's store, so Francie did not go all the way in. She stood by the doorway. The boys, from 8 to 14 years of age, looked alike in straggling knickerbockers and broken peaked caps. They stood around, hands in pockets and thin shoulders hunched forward tensely. They would grow up looking like that, standing the same way in other hangouts. The only difference would be the cigarette, seemingly permanently fastened between their lips, rising and falling in accent as they spoke. Now the boys churned about nervously, their thin faces turning from Charlie to each other and back to Charlie again. Francie noticed that some already had their summer haircut, hair cropped so short that there were nicks in the scalp where the clippers had bitten too deeply. These fortunates had their caps crammed into their pockets or pushed back on their head. The unshorn ones, whose hair curled gently and still babyishly at the nape of their neck, were ashamed and wore their caps pulled so far down over their ears that there was something girlish about them in spite of their jerky profanity. Cheap Charlie was not cheap, and his name wasn't Charlie. He had taken that name and said so on the store awning, and Francie believed it. Charlie gave you a pick for your penny, a board with 50 numbered hooks and a prize hanging from each hook hung behind the counter. There were a few fine prizes, roller skates, a catcher's mitt, a doll with real hair, and so on. The other hooks held blotters, pencils, and other penny articles. Francie watched as Neely bought a pick. He removed the dirty card from the ragged envelope. 26. Hopefully, Francie looked at the board. He had drawn a penny pen wiper. Prize or candy? Charlie asked him. Candy? What do you think? It was always the same. Francie had never heard of anyone winning above a penny prize. Indeed, the skate wheels were rusted and the doll's hair had dust filmed, as though these things had waited there a long time like Little Boy Blue's toy dog and tin soldier. Someday, Francie resolved, when she had 50 cents, she would take all the picks and win everything on the board. She figured that would be a good business deal. Skates, mitt, doll, and all the other things for 50 cents? Why, the skates alone were worth four times that much. Neely would have to come along that great day because girls seldom patronized Charlie's. True, there were a few girls there that Saturday. Bold, brash ones, too developed for their age. Girls who talked loud and horse-played around with the boys. Girls whom the neighbors prophesied would come to no good. Francie went across the street to Gimpy's candy store. Gimpy was lame. He was a gentleman, kind to little children, or so everyone thought until that sunny afternoon when he inveigled a little girl into his dismal back room. Francie debated whether she should sacrifice one of her pennies for a gimpy special, the prize bag. Maudie Donovan, her once-in-a-while girlfriend, was about to make a purchase. 
Francie pushed her way in until she was standing behind Maudie. She pretended that she was spending the penny. She held her breath as Maudie, after much speculation, pointed dramatically at a bulging bag in the showcase. Francie would have picked a smaller bag. She looked over her friend's shoulder, saw her take out a few pieces of stale candy, and examine her prize, a coarse cambric handkerchief. Once, Francie had gotten a small bottle of strong scent. She debated again whether to spend a penny on a prize bag. It was nice to be surprised, even if you couldn't eat the candy. But she reasoned she had been surprised by being with Maudie when she made her purchase, and that was almost as good. Francie walked up Manhattan Avenue, reading aloud the fine-sounding names of the streets she passed. Skulls. Mercerol, Montrose, and then Johnson Avenue. These last two avenues were where the Italians had settled. The district called Jewtown, started at Sagal Street, took in Moore and McKibben and went past Broadway. Francie headed for Broadway. And what was on Broadway in Williamsburg, Brooklyn? Nothing only the finest nickel and dime store in all the world. It was big and glittering and had everything in the world in it, or so it seemed to an 11-year-old girl. Francie had a nickel. Francie had power. She could buy practically anything in that store. It was the only place in the world where that could be. Arriving at the store, she walked up and down the aisles, handling any object her fancy favored. What a wonderful feeling to pick something up, hold it for a moment, feel its contour, run her hand over its surface, and then replace it carefully. Her nickel gave her this privilege. If a floor walker asked whether she intended buying anything, she could say yes, buy it, and show him a thing or two. Money was a wonderful thing, she decided. After an orgy of touching things, she made her planned purchase, five cents worth of pink and white peppermint wafers. She walked back home down Graham Avenue, the ghetto street. She was excited by the filled pushcarts, each a little store in itself, the bargaining emotional Jews and the peculiar smells of the neighborhood baked stuffed fish, sour rye bread fresh from the oven, and something that smelled like honey boiling. She stared at the bearded men in their alpaca skull caps and silkeline coats and wondered what made their eyes so small and fierce. She looked into tiny hole-in-the-wall shops and smelled the dress fabrics arranged in disorder on the tables. She noticed the feather beds bellying out of the windows, clothes of oriental bright colors drying on the fire escapes, and the half-naked children playing in the gutters. A woman, big with child, sat patiently at the curb in a stiff wooden chair. She sat in the hot sunshine, watching the life on the street and guarding within herself her own mystery of life. Francie remembered her surprise that time when Mama told her that Jesus was a Jew. Francie had thought that he was a Catholic, but Mama knew. 
Mama said that the Jews had never looked on Jesus as anything but a troublesome Yiddish boy who would not work at the carpentry trade, marry, settle down, and raise a family. And the Jews believed that their Messiah was yet to come, Mama said. Thinking of this, Francie stared at the pregnant Jewess. I guess that's why the Jews have so many babies, Francie thought, and why they sit so quiet, waiting, and why they aren't ashamed the way they are fat. Each one thinks that she might be making the real little Jesus. That's why they walk so proud when they're that way. Now the Irish women always look so ashamed. They know they can never make a Jesus. It will be just another Mick. When I grow up and know that I am going to have a baby, I will remember to walk proud and slow, even though I am not a Jew. It was 12 when Francie got home. Mama came in soon after with her broom and pail, which she banged into a corner with that final bang, which meant that she, they wouldn't be touched again until Monday. Mama was 29. She had black hair and brown eyes and was quick with her hands. She had a nice shape too. She worked as a janitress and kept three tenement houses clean. Who would ever believe that Mama scrubbed floors to make a living for the four of them? She was so pretty and slight and vivid and always bubbling over with intensity and fun. Even though her hands were red and cracked from the sodade water, they were beautifully shaped with lovely curved oval nails. Everyone said it was a pity that a slight pretty woman like Katie Nolan had to go out scrubbing floors. But what else could she do considering the husband she had, they said. They admitted that, no matter which way you looked at it, Johnny Nolan was a handsome, lovable fellow, far superior to any man on the block. But he was a drunk. That's what they said, and it was true. Francie made Mama watch while she put the eight cents in the tin can bank. They had a pleasant five minutes conjecturing about how much was in the bank. Francie thought there must be nearly a hundred dollars. Mama said eight dollars would be nearer right. Mama gave Francie instructions about going out to buy something for lunch. Take eight cents from the cracked cup and get a quarter loaf of Jew rye bread and see that it's fresh. Then take a nickel, go to Sour Wines, and ask for the end of the tongue for a nickel. But you have to have a pull with him to get it. Tell him that your mother said, insisted Katie firmly. She thought something over. I wonder whether we ought to buy five cents worth of sugar buns or put that money in the bank. Oh, Mama, it's Saturday. All week you said we could have dessert on Saturday. All right, get the buns. The little Jewish delicatessen was full of Christians buying Jew rye bread. She watched the man push her quarter loaf into a paper bag. With its wonderful, crisp, yet tender crust and floury bottom, it was easily the most wonderful bread in the world, she thought, when it was fresh. She entered Sarah Wine's store reluctantly. Sometimes he was agreeable about the tongue, and sometimes he wasn't. 
Sliced tongue at 75 cents a pound was only for rich people, but when it was nearly all sold, you could get the square end for a nickel if you had pull with Mr. Sour One. Of course, there wasn't much tongue to the end. It was mostly soft, small bones and gristle with only the memory of meat. It happened to be one of Sourwine's agreeable days. The tongue came to an end yesterday, he told Francie, and I saved it for you because I know your mama likes tongue and I like your mama. You tell her that, here? Yes, sir, whispered Francie. She looked down on the floor as she felt her face getting warm. She hated Mr. Sourwine and would not tell mama what he had said.